Good morning, everybody. How we doing? Glad you're here. Um, love being in church together. Today we are uh, starting a new series called Wildfire. And, you know, preaching, pastoring, teaching, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's a little bit art, a little bit science. Sometimes you look at the calendar and figure out what would be good to talk about, but other times um, you feel led or prompted to, to, to do certain things and go certain directions. And for a little while now, I have felt prompted to spend some time as a church teaching through, preaching through, learning from the book of Acts, which is New Testament book right after the Gospels. And the reason it's named Acts quite literally, is because it is the actions, it's the acts of the apostles and the first Christians. And so we're going to take this fall to hear and learn from the stories of the first Christians. And that's going to take a little bit of time. We're not going to do it all at once. We're going to teach a couple of weeks, take a break, do some other things, and then come back. We'll teach a little bit more on it, and then take a break and do some other things. Um, so it won't be straight through. But I want us to spend some time learning from these first Christians for a couple of reasons. I'll tell you why. First is because the book of Acts was written to a skeptic. It was written to a man named Theophilus, written by a doctor named Luke, um, to a specific person who was skeptical of the Christian faith. And Luke believed that if Theophilus heard the stories of the first Christians, that it would be so compelling that Theophilus would become a believer in Jesus Christ. I think that's amazing. And I know that we live in a really skeptical, cynical time right now as a society. Maybe some of you are here today that no doubt there are some of you here today who are skeptical of the Christian faith. You're here for lots of different reasons, but you're not sure if you're all in yet in a belief in, in Jesus Christ. And, and I want you to know, and Luke, who wrote this book, wanted you to know the story of the first Christians. And he believed, and I believe, that if you will hear their stories, you will be compelled to put your faith in, in Jesus Christ. But another reason I want us to um, learn and read these stories of the first Christians is because it shows us what God can do in a city, that this really happened in a place geographically, longitude, latitude, on a calendar, in history. It really happened the first 12 chapters of Acts happen in a city called Jerusalem. This is where they live. This is where they work. This is where their families were. And we get to see what happens in a city and the way that a church, a group of people, a group of believers can change a city, make a real difference in a real place. And I believe, I have the conviction over the last 15 years as the pastor of this church, I believe that wherever there is a church, a city should be better for it. I believe that. That wherever there is a church, that city, that community should be better because that, that church is there. And so as we read the stories of these first Christians, I believe we're going to be inspired to see how potentially we can change our city for the better too. But the last reason that we're taking this time to read and study the book of Acts and to hear the stories of the first Christians is because I want us to see what happens when normal people become filled with God's power. When normal people, like you and me, become filled with God's power. These people that we are going to read about were fishermen and accountants and former prostitutes and moms and dads, and they were uneducated according to our standards of education. But somehow, in spite of all of that, they literally changed history. 
I mean, that's not hyperbole. They literally changed history. The reason that you and I are sitting here today is because of these first Christians and, and how they lived and what they did. And so I'm praying that over these next few weeks and months that you will begin to experience God's power at work in your life like never before. And we'll spend some time later talking about exactly what that means, okay? So we're gonna read these stories of these first Christians and learn from this book. Are you ready? Okay, all right, we're gonna do that. Now, the reason that we're calling this series Wildfire is because as you study church history, there's really no other way to, to, to describe what happened the story of Jesus, the church of Jesus spread like wildfire, like wildfire. And I'll just give you a few numbers to show you what I mean. We read today, Kevin read to us that um, Christianity as, as we know it, the church as we know it, started with 120 people in a Middle Eastern city in Jerusalem in a gathering space together, okay? So we know the first number, the first service was 120. Somebody counted that we have Richard here who counts for us. They had a Richard, all right? And somebody was counting 120. And again, they weren't important people, no power influence. They didn't have any schools or official literature, no internet, no airplanes. I mean, th there was no grand strategy. They weren't even technically citizens of the land that they were living in. They were Jewish people in a Roman empire and without credentials or power and being mocked and arrested and tortured and killed, somehow these 120 people in just a few years by 40 AD grew to be about a thousand Christians. And then by um, 100 AD grew to be about 7,000 Christians. And then by 200 AD, it had grown to about 200,000 Christians. By 300 AD, it exceeded 5 million Christians. And today, it's estimated that there are 2.5 billion, with a B, every time you say billion, you got to say with a B, billion Christians in the world. If you're here today and you're Christian, you're part of that number. Oh, and by the way, that number, 2.5 billion, it grew by 44 million last year. Okay? Yeah. So listen to me, Christian who feels as if Christianity is fading, that, that other ideas and religions are winning out when you're at work and you feel pressure because you're a Christian. Or listen to me, middle school, high school, college student, teacher, listen to me. You feel this pressure like Christianity's fading out and it's going away and it's old fashioned. That's a lie. It's not true. Christianity is growing exploding all over the world. And you're a part of that, okay? You're not alone, so hang in there. And we don't really think of it like this because for all of us, even if we didn't grow up religious, we grew up in the vicinity of Christian religion, you know? So we don't think of it this way, but I want you to think about the fact that here we are 2,000 years later or so, and nobody worships Zeus anymore. And you're like, well, yeah, duh, nobody worships Zeus. But at the time that we're talking about Zeus and the Greek gods and, and, and those types of idols and, 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 and things were the dominant religious force. Matter of fact, one of the things that got Christians in trouble and persecuted was that they refused to worship those gods. And there was just a few hundred or thousand Christians over here who refused to do that. And here we are 2,000 years later, and nobody worships Zeus, but billions and 
billions of people worship God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their God, these 120, their God. Here we are, billions of people later, worshiping their God. And no, we laugh at the idea that somebody would worship Zeus. How did that happen? We take it for granted, but how did it happen that 120 turned into a few thousand to a few million to a few billion? And their God became the God, the only God. How'd that happen? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this fall. And today, the starting point for how that happened begins, the beginning of the story of the first Christians begins in the most ordinary way, ordinary way. It just begins with a church service, just a, a normal, routine church service. That's it. And I don't know if you know this or not, but when you decided to get up today, this morning, and come to church, you weren't just coming to church. Did you know that? You're here, but you, you weren't just coming to church. When you decided to get up and to come to church, you were participating in a Christian practice that goes back a few thousand years. Did you know that? And listen, it's not always easy to get yourself here. You know, it's hard enough just to get you here. But if you're responsible for somebody else, you got to get them ready, right? And you got to get them here. And listen, if you're married, the, the biggest fights happen on the way to church. Andrew and I drive separate. It's spiritual warfare because the pastor's coming to church and we're just going to drive separate, okay? You're not going to get us today, devil. All right, we're taking separate cars. Because the biggest fight, isn't that true? You're in the car and you have one of the worst fights ever and then you're yelling and threatening and everything and you get out of the car and you just smile. Hey, everybody. God bless. Highly favored. And you're just, you're just hoping that in the next hour and a half, God like helps your spouse, you know? My point is that it's really, it's, it's, it's really challenging to get to church sometimes. And you're not just coming to check something off your list. You're doing something that Christians have been doing since the first century. And I want you to know, I'm glad you're here. However you got here, I'm glad you're here. Whatever time you showed up, I saw some of y'all sliding in during the second song. I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. You're part of something that goes back a long time. Now in 110 AD, there was a, a pagan writer named Pliny, and he was critical of Christianity. He was curious and critical, and so he set out to investigate this religion that was beginning to, 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 to influence culture and, and people. And it was actually Pliny who gives us the first outside account. We have some things in the Bible, but it was Pliny who gives us, as a non-believer, he was the first person to give us an account of what church services, worship services, gatherings of Christians um, looked like. And this is what he said, just one simple, very, very simple description. Pliny says about Christians, of which he was not one, he says, they met on a fixed day to chant a hymn to God and took an oath committing themselves to upright behavior. That's it. That's the only description he felt like he needed to give. This is what Christians did almost 2,000 years ago. Meet together on a fixed day, sing, 
and try to live better lives. Meet together, sing, and try to live better lives. And it all begins with the story that we read today. Now, if you're here and you grew up Pentecostal, like me, then you know what's coming in Acts chapter 2. You, you know that, that probably the most important, definitely the most dramatic, the most popular story in the book of Acts is going to happen next week. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you definitely need to be here next week. But for a lot of us, we know what's coming in Acts chapter 2. But for some reason, Luke, when talking to a skeptic, did not feel the need to start with the day of Pentecost. He felt the need to start with 120 people meeting together in one place. That's what he said. He said, Theophilus, there were 120 people who met together in one place. Now, why do you think that is? I, that, that makes me curious. Why do you believe that Luke believed that it was important to point out to this Theophilus, say that three times fast, that the first Christians met, met together. And here's a better question. Why is it important that we still do it today? Well, there are um, a lot of answers to that question that we do not have time to get into today. I am going to give you three, and I'll tell you those in just a second, three reasons. But before I do that, I want to say something I think is pretty important, okay? The easiest thing in, in the world to do when a pastor preaches about church is to be heavy-handed to use guilt and shame, uh, to tell you all the reasons why you should be in church more and serve more and give more and fish less and play golf less and go to the lake less um, and, and, and be a little bit heavy-handed with that. And there are lots of problems with that. Um, the, I mean, off the top of my head, one of the problems is that when you do that, it doesn't actually encourage the people who aren't committed to be more committed. It encourages the people who are already overcommitted to commit more is usually what happens. But more than that, like I grew up in church. I was in church all the time. You know, the old saying, if the doors were open, we were there. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about? And so every time there would be a pastor or preacher who would like heavy-handedly kind of make people feel bad because they should be in church more, the thought always crossed my mind, dude, we're actually here. You're, you are quite literally preaching to the choir, I'm always here. I beg my parents not to come. We still come. I'm always here. Why are you beating me up? You need to go to the house of the people who are not here. But we're here. And I'm looking around, and I know all these people. We're always here. We're always here. And so I never quite, I mean, I get it. I know as a pastor that feeling of wanting more people to be here. But I've never quite understood why you beat up the people who are here uh, you know, about, about being here more. Because the reality is you're here. You don't have to be here. There are more options of things to do on Sunday morning than there's ever been before. But you came. It was important enough for you to get here. And I don't know all the reasons you decided to come, like I said, but I'm, I, whatever they are, and whatever condition you showed up in, I'm just glad you made it. Okay, so I'm not going to do that today. That is my commitment to you. No, no heavy handed guilt or shame about church attendance, because the reality is I don't have to do that. Church is a gift to you from God that God gave us a place to go 
while we wait on him to return, a place to be encouraged, to be prayed for, a place to be known and to help others and to be helped when we need help. And your life will be better when this place becomes a priority for your family. There's no doubt about that. I love the way that the psalmist says it in Psalm 92. He says, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like the cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age and they will stay fresh and green. According to the psalmist, being planted in church is better than Botox. It's better than keto. It is, is, is better than retirement in Florida and pickleball. According to the psalmist, when you decide to plant yourself in the house of God, the courts of God, there's a stability to your life. And, 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 and you flourish and you still bear fruit in old age and you stay fresh and you stay green. And listen, we have many of you here in the church with us and I'm not calling you old, but you're older, okay? But what I love about you is that you're, you don't think your time's up. You're thriving, you're flourishing. There's still a life to you, still a faith to you that God's gonna do something amazing. And I don't know about you, but I wanna flourish. I still wanna be fruitful and fresh as I age. And according to the psalmist, that happens when we plant ourselves in God's house. So God gives us the church as a gift to us, all right? So here's what I'm gonna do for the time I got left. I wanna give you three guilt-free reasons why the first Christians met together and why we should too, all right? Three guilt-free reasons why, the, why the, the, the first Christians met together, why Luke thought it was important enough to tell Theophilus and to tell us before something more dramatic happened, three reasons, guilt-free reasons, why the first Christians met together and why we should too. And I'll go ahead and give you all three for the note takers so you can have that proper space, okay? Here's the three reasons, because church is a family, church is a tradition, and church is a power. Church is a family, church is a tradition, and church is a power. And we get these from the second scripture that Kevin read to us in Ephesians. I'll just read a little bit of it again. Paul says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizen along, citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. That's where we get the first one, that, that church is a family. Then he says, together, we are his house built on the foundation, the firm foundation we sang about of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. That's the tradition, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus. He says, we're carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of the dwelling where God lives by his spirit. This church family that we are together is filled with God's spirit. God dwells here. That's, that's the power. Church is a power. Family, tradition, power. So let's look at each one of those. Number one, first, why is this important? Because the church is a family. And we say it all the time around here. Matter of fact, so much, you can probably finish the sentence by now, but we say church is more than a service. What? It's a family. Y'all didn't know that as well as I thought you did. I need to say it more often. Andrea knew it. She, she, she helped us out. What does that mean? Church is more than a service, it's a family. I think it's so cool. And I know most of the time when we read the Bible, we get to names, we skip over that part. But I think it is so cool that when Luke tells the story of the first Christian service, he tells us who was there. Peter was there. Bartholomew was there. James was there. Mary was there. They knew their names. 
They knew who these people were. And see, our lives now revolves around algorithms. There are people and machines that collect every bite of information about your behavior, and then they craft custom experiences for you, and they know everything about you, but they don't know you. I mean, they really know everything about you, maybe more than you know about you, but they don't know you. They don't know you. Or maybe you're like me, and you're on a thousand group texts, right? And mostly you share pictures of your kids, first day of school, but really, honestly, you just share mildly inappropriate memes to each other in those group texts. Or, or maybe you spend hours and hours every month with the other families who play on your kid's ball team. And you're there, you're together a lot, but you find yourself always talking about the lineup or the coaching adjustments or the other team's scouting report. Or maybe you, you've lived in your neighborhood now for several years and you kind of know your neighbors, you know their names, you see them out when you're out and you kind of wave. But you've never seen their living room or sat at their table. They've never sat at yours. And so let me ask you this question about your text group or your sports families or your neighbors. Do you feel like they know you? I mean, do you feel known? Do you feel like they really know who you are? Do they know your story? Have they ever known when you're vulnerable or when you're weak? Have you ever asked them for help? Are you known? Do you feel like you're a part of something? And I love that when, when Luke is writing this, this first story about the Christians, he's like, look, this is not just like a a moral kind of belief system. These are people. They have families. They have addresses. They, 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 like that's, that's John and that's Matthew. And that's like, the, we know who they are. We know who they are. Because church was never intended for you to slide in and slide out and hide out. God created a family for you to be known, a, a place for you to use your strengths, but also a place for you to feel safe to be weak. And I mentioned earlier to you about um, how much persecution these first Christians endured and, and really even more so the next few generations of Christians. And it's really crazy when you read about it that they didn't have anything to offer. They couldn't bribe anybody. They didn't have positions of power to offer or to trade. All they had to offer was Jesus and almost certainty that you would be persecuted or killed for it and a group of people who would love you. That's really all they had to offer. Jesus, a guarantee of hard times, but a family, a place to belong. Because when you become a Christian, you become part of that family. You belong to something. You matter to people. And this was true back then. When you become a Christian, you become a part of God's family. Every Christian everywhere, you're a part of that family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. But when you become a part of Hope City, you are a part of this family, the Hope City family. And I, I take zero, well, like very little credit for what is such a strength of this church. But we work very, very, very hard to make sure that you know that you're known and you're loved and cared for. And again, it's not so much me, but it's amazing people as a part of our church family who want this to happen. So many amazing stories lately 
in our church of people just going above and beyond to say, hey, we just want you to know we love you. We care about you, your family. Uh, one of the stories is Jasmine, who's a part of our church. Her father passed away, and just for a lot of reasons, Jasmine's immediate family was not able to pull together and provide the services needed for the funeral and the wake. And she mentioned this to some ladies in her small group, and the ladies in her small group passed it along to the elders and the care team, and word got around to our care team that someone in our church family was burying their father, but did not have the, the help that they needed in order to, to put this on. And, and two of my favorite people that joined our church in the merger of Harvest and Hope together, uh, the Cheevers, heard about it. And they said, no, 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 not on our watch. They got together and worked with people, got the food, and Roger and Susie went over to the house where the wake was and just planted themselves in the kitchen. Matter of fact, I think we have a picture of it up here. That's Roger and Susie in the kitchen. And they just said, hey, we're here. Whatever you need, let us know. Because Jasmine, listen, you're part of our family. That picture there on the right, that's Joe's small group because someone in their group, uh, a couple that is a part of their group is, decided to adopt. And so they're raising family to, to raising money to adopt a child. And so they worked with a restaurant so that everybody who ate there, a percentage of the bill would go towards their adoption fund. And when Joe found out, he just told everybody in the group, guess where we're going for our group meeting? And they went and ordered way too much food and spent too much money just to say to the person in their group, hey, listen, we're with you. We're family. We've got some other pictures. They're just so cool of people being family. Uh, one, of the, one of the families in our church, the Jacksons, Debbie's father, Megan's grandfather, because of his age and his physical condition, condition was not able to, to leave the house. And so Debbie, if you can throw that next picture up, Debbie let us know what was going on. And some men in our church who have the skill set that I do not possess went over to the house and built a ramp so that they would be able to get their father and their grandfather out of the house because we're a family. We're a family. Sister Mary needed her gutters cleaned and she was gonna find somebody and pay somebody. But you gotta be careful around here. You can't, you can't say a need out loud. You better be careful because once we find out. And so word got around to Greg, one of our elders, and Greg called his son who's in college and said, you're going with me today. And went over to Sister Mary's house and got the ladder out and just cleaned the gutters. Because we're a family. You belong to something. You matter to people. So church is a family, but it's not just a family. Church is also a tradition. And tradition is not a word that we really like all that much in our society, and I get it, but the older I get and the crazier the stuff I'm hearing gets, I'll be honest with you and tell you that I find great comfort in knowing that I belong to something that's way older than me and will last a long time after I'm gone. And we're not making this up on the spot. And that's what Paul was saying in Ephesians when he said, you are members of God's family. Together we're his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. And there's a word for this and we don't have time to get into it, but the word's orthodoxy. It's the traditions and the beliefs of the Christians for thousands of years. It's passed down, it's passed down. 
Because see, as the church began to grow over the years, these 120 began to spread and then geographically they began to spread. They began to have a real problem that there were these different kind of strains of Christianity, if you will, these branches of Christianity where people were claiming to be Christians, but believing things that were like not Christian beliefs. And so the apostles and the leaders got together and said, okay, we need to figure out what are the absolute essentials, the non-negotiables. It's where we get our creeds and our belief statements from. And they wanted to make sure that everywhere where Christianity spread, that people knew what it meant to, to be a Christian and, and to claim to, to, to be a Christian and belong to that. It's a tradition. And in reality, I'm just an interim pastor. I've been here 15 years. I hope I get to be here a couple of more decades, but at some point my time will end. My job while I'm here is to help you live the Christian life the best that you can, but when I'm done, someone else is gonna come along and gonna take their turn. And then when they're done, they're gonna pass it off to somebody else. And the responsibility that I have and the responsibility that you have is to be faithful in our time, to be faithful in our time, to pass this faith down to our kids and their kids. And we're not just winging it. We're following the tradition of the church. Now, beautifully, we have the freedom to figure out how to contextualize that and modernize that. And I'm so grateful that I'm not, I don't have to wear a robe today and a headpiece, okay? Like, I love that, like, we get to sing newer songs. And I love that, like, there's a, a, a the freedom to express ourselves differently, but don't, don't be mistaken, here today, seeing all the things that we do, we are a very traditional church built on the traditions of the church. And most of the radical new ideas that people are trying to convince you to believe are like less than 50 years old, maybe 100. Heck, our country's only 250 years old. But Christianity and the church is 2,000 years old. There's a weight to it. And listen, we don't always get everything right, and church history has a lot of black eyes. So don't hear me saying we're perfect. But when we got it wrong, it wasn't because the apostles and Jesus was wrong. It was because we got away from the foundation of the Bible and Jesus and had to come back. So we want to be faithful in our time and pass it on to our children and their children. And when you show up each week, yes, we sing songs or somebody teaches or you hug somebody's neck, but you also are continuing to build God's church on the foundation. You're a part of that. Let me give you one more. It's not just a, a family. It's not just a tradition, but Paul says it's also a power. It's not just that it has power. I hope that while you're here today, you feel something powerful in your life, but it's not just that it has power. It's that it is a power. And here's what I mean by that that there is a supernatural element to what happens in our life when we are a part of the church. So when I say supernatural power, don't just think mystical. Again, we are all raised different ways. And so when I say supernatural power, book of Acts, you're thinking, for those of us who grew up Pentecostal, you're thinking like mystical. Others of you like have a whole different view. But when I say supernatural experience God's power, I, I, in one sense, that power shows itself in very normal ways, the benefits that we experience naturally by being a part of a church. I've shared this with you before, but in 2016, Harvard professor Tyler Vanderwill and journalist John Seneff, they wrote a USA Today op-ed titled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. And in it, they asked this question. If, if someone could convince or con conceive or create 
a single elixir or medicine that would improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? In essence, they're saying, if there was a miracle drug that you could take that would improve your life, your mental and physical health in dramatic ways, like what would that be worth to you? How would the media cover that? Like what? And they said, there is attending church. Attending church. The rest of the article goes on to outline mental and physical health benefits correlated with regular religious participation. And here's what they found. Research suggests that those who regularly attend worship services, not to get it all right, not to give extra money, or show up to all the extra stuff. Just those people who get in the car and show up. Those people, research says, are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. This is a power. That's power. But there's also a supernatural power at work, something more intangible, harder to explain. And I'm willing to bet that many of you would attest to this fact that when you got out of church, for whatever reason, there's lots of different reasons, but there was a season in your life or have been seasons in your life where you got out of church. You just got out of the habit or there was a reason you left and there was an extended period of time in your life where you got out of church. I would be willing to bet that you would say that it felt as if you or your family was missing something. There was something missing. Maybe a joy or a hope or a stability. You're describing power. And see, the first Christians had no idea that we would still be doing this thousands of years later. They thought that Jesus would return like next week. The book of Acts starts with the ascension of Jesus. He had said, I'm, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll return. And so they thought like, you know, let's go pray. And then, you know, he'll be back like Wednesday. That's what they thought. And, and so they said, well, while we're waiting on him to come back, hopefully soon, probably soon, while we're waiting on him to come back, we'll just get together and we'll wait together. We'll wait together. We'll, we'll get together as often as possible, and we'll pray together, we'll sing together. And each time they did that, they experienced a power that would help them wait. It would help them wait more faithfully. It was, it was a power to quite literally help them keep the faith. And listen, we don't potentially think Jesus come back next week. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know, that's not the point. But you and I are doing the same thing. We get together while we wait. This is where we come while we're waiting on him to return. And each time we do, we are filled with God's spirit and power to keep the faith. Being a mom's hard. Being a mom while you're waiting on God to come back is really hard. Get to church. Being an entrepreneur, running a business is really hard. Waiting on God to return while you're running that business. Get to church. There's a power here. Being a teacher. Being a police officer. Being nice to mean people. It's hard while we're trying to, while we're waiting on Christ to return. Get to church. You struggling? Get to church. You feel like giving up? 
get to church. You're hurting, get to church. Because there's a family here. There's a tradition here. And there's a power here that's going to help you wait better. Wait more faithfully. Keep the faith in Jesus Christ. Family, tradition, power, you're a part of that. And this movement that would go on to reach millions and billions of people started with 120 people. You know John, Peter, Matthew, Bartholomew, Mary, 120 people. It just started with 120 people who said, you know what, we'll get together. We'll meet together in the same place for a church service. So I want to end by telling you about a guy named Celsus. Um, Celsus was a Greek writer in the second century who hated Christianity with a passion. I mean, with a venom. He hated Christianity. And um, we don't really know much else about him, just that he hated Christianity. Uh, there was no other documents kept, or really the document that he wrote that I'm going to reference. We lost it, but a hundred years later, somebody had it and wrote a rebuttal to it. So we actually get his words from the rebuttal. We don't really know anything about Celsus, but he hated Christians. Maybe you work with somebody like that. Just a venom hatred for Christianity. And so he set out to write a, um, he wanted to research and write a, a uh, adversarial approach or dialogue about Christianity, a rebuttal to Christianity. And you can go and read it, but I mean, he's just, I mean, he just goes off about anything and everything. But really, you can kind of summarize Celsus' objections to Christianity, his hatred for Christians. Really, you can summarize his disdain because of three things he hated about Christians. I'm going to give them to you. Celsus said, I can't stand Christians, number one, because they believe the stupidest stuff. They believe foolish things, Celsus said. Secondly, he said, I, I can't stand Christians because they take in the worst kinds of people. And remember, during this time, like, prestige was everything, name was everything. And he said, but what really boils my blood is that they refuse to compromise. That even when they are standing before lions who will eat them alive, and all they have to do, whether they even mean it or not, is just say, I don't even believe in God, and they won't do it. They believe foolish things. They take in the worst kinds of people and they refuse to compromise. And I hate, Celsus would say. <clears throat> and see what Celsus then and others now don't understand is they think that we think, us Christians, they think that we think that we're smarter than everybody else and that we're better than everybody else. And they think we're more closed-minded than everyone else. That's not true. We're not smarter than everybody else. We believe the craziest things. If you're here and you're a Christian, I hope you know this, you believe some ridiculous things. This is not the place where all the smartest people come. We don't think we're better than everybody else. We love the worst kinds of people. You know how many messed up people there are in this room? We're not better than everybody else. We're... We just figured we'd just get together with all our problems. It's not that we're closed-minded. It's just that 
we, we don't believe that all ideas are created equally. We, we really take this faith seriously that we have. And so it's not that we're trying to make anybody else feel bad for what we believe. It's just that we believe it. And if you believe something, you got to hold on to it when people don't want you to believe it. And so it's not that we're perfect. We're just different. And it's not that we think we're better than everybody else. We just know that we're better than ourselves five years ago. It's not that we're better than you. It's just that I'm better than I was. And so here's the deal. I'll be here next week, okay? And if you want to believe crazy things with me, and you want to love the worst kinds of people with me, and you want to come to a place where you can be strengthened so that when you leave, you can refuse to compromise, I'll be here. And the more of you that show up, the more encouraged we'll be together. The more power we'll experience together. Believing crazy things, loving the worst kinds of people, and keeping the faith, that's church. That's church. And planted in the house of the Lord, we will flourish in the courts of God, and we will still bear fruit in old age, and we will stay fresh and green. Let's pray.